Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's guest is Amy Brown Carver. This is the episode that we're talking about ethics, divorce, uh, your principles, whether you should be guided by them or whether you should guide them. And I just enjoyed having this conversation so much. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it. I'm really pleased to have Amy as the first guest in this new season of Tea with Alice. Uh, she's a fascinating person. I know her mainly through my Patreon, patreon.com slash Alice Fraser, if that's a thing that you would like to support. I run my salons weekly and my writers' meetings, and it's such interesting people who come and, and we talk about all sorts of things, but that is how I got to know her, and I'm so pleased that I did. So patreon.com slash Alice Fraser is the place. All of my stand-up specials are there for free, as well as, you know, I put updates about the things that I'm doing as social media is no longer a particularly reliable way to get the message out there because of all these algorithms and chaos in that industry. I am on Twitter at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E. If you want that, tweet me or hit me up on Patreon and we can have a chat. I will let you get into the episode. I'll stop rambling. I'm just excited to let you hear it. I'll talk to you again next week. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. Who are you and what are you drinking? I am Amy Brown Carver. I'm a writer. I'm drinking some coffee, some water, and um, hot water with lemon and a cinnamon stick. Wow, so there's interesting coffee and hot water with lemon and a cinnamon stick. They seem antagonists in the battle for warm beverages in Mm. your mouth. I feel like people who drink hot water with lemon and a cinnamon stick, it's because they don't want joy in their lives. No, it's because they don't want coffee or they're trying to, it's sort of, it seems uh, like a substitute, not an additive drink, if you know Mm -hmm. what I mean. Mm -hmm. But really, you can have all of them. Yeah, no, I I mean, these rules, who's made these rules? I haven't made the rules. It's just an unusual thing. Uh, I think we can tell from this drink choice that you're you're an outside the box thinker. (laughs) That's right. That's about, I mean, we'll see if it gets anywhere outside the box in that. Do you attach moral weight to, to the lemon drink? Because I know that some people, for some people, it's a real virtue thing. In, and I don't mean that in like a dismissive way. For some people, like drinking lemon water in the morning, it sets them up for the day. They feel like it's their thing. You know, The real win with the, the lemon cinnamon water for me was I would make it like a hot toddy. You know, so I have whiskey in it and honey. And I realized eventually that I liked it just as well without any whiskey. And so it was uh-huh. like, it's a treat with no alcohol. I can drink it all day, no problem. So yeah, game changer in that way. That's a great game changer. I'm very glad. I um, I just finished drinking my morning cup of tea, which was just a, a my cha, just straight up brown rice, green tea, uh, I've had a morning of experimental baking because my brother is here with his kid and I wanted to show that I'm a good mother (laughs) because my brother is such a good mother. He's like such a nurturing and maternal kind of person. Uh, So I did all this like experimental baking, but there's nothing in the house. So yeah, there was some, I made porridge, but we didn't have any oats. So it was like buckwheat and brown rice porridge with like dried pineapple. And but like it, it turned out all right, but it was extremely like, what if I add some more different stuff? <laughs> I like this like competitive mothering too. Is that like a twin thing, a sibling thing? 
for you two? See, I've never felt competitive with my brother. It's more that I want his approval. Okay. I think of all the people in the world, my twin brother's approval is the is the approval that I kind of value the most, which is funny because he doesn't like my the thing that I am proudest of uh, in terms of my output. Um, he doesn't like savage. Oh. So that's that's an interesting sort of conflict in my in myself because I do like it. And so in, in that moment, I think I kind of maybe grew up a little bit. Um, not that my brother is my dad or anything, but like I think he – I have more um, more of a sense of my dad's flaws as a person than of my brother's maybe. Hmm. I don't know what that what that is. But how about you? What have you been wrestling with recently? Um, I, I knew this would be the question because I'm familiar with the podcast. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, I think I need to answer to talk about the fact that me and my husband are going through a separation, which is like a little bit recent. I asked him, I was like, I'm going to go on the podcast. Is it okay if I talk about this? And he said, he said, sure. Um, and it's very, it's like <laughs> mutual and it is. Uh, well, I mean, the fact that you could have that conversation already bespeaks a really nice, not separated relationship. Yeah. You can still have a conversation about that respectfully. Right. And we're, we're very amicable. So it's not like struggling with in this like um, explosive emotional space. But um, my my background is very sort of like conservative Christian and like uh, heritage wise, like in German American stoicism, like a, a blending of this, like you have principles and who cares if you're miserable and like you just follow them. And like, I'm still kind of attached or attracted to that for some reason, this like suck it up, you know, like who, who told you life wasn't supposed to be miserable. Like, I don't know why I like that, but um, I don't know. There's a hard edge to it. Who am I to want something better for myself? (laughs) There's a sort of an arrogance in that. Yeah. Or why, I don't know why expect things to be nice. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I've come a long way from that background. I live in L.A. now. I've been there for a while. Like, it's a more... um, L.A., the place where nobody ever asks, do I deserve this? (laughs) Exactly. Like, it's a very much like, uh, you know, uh, care for yourself to death sort of mentality, um, which is good, I think, in general. Um, it's been lots and lots of improvements, but I'm struggling with this, like, okay, if I don't live by these sort of older standards of like, of course you don't get divorced, you know, like, and let, you know, even if it's killing you, you like stick it out. I think I'm struggling with like how to frame life decisions, you know, like, like what comes in to replace that? And, you know, how do you decide for yourself if something is good enough or needs to change or, you know? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question because you have these two extremes, I guess, in front of you, neither of which looks like the right way to go about it. On one hand, just grinding through something for the rest of your life because you committed to it at one point is foolish you know particularly if you don't have kind of a belief in an afterlife or some kind of abstract moral good there's no good in 
to be gotten in making each other miserable. But on the other hand, you can see people who take and discard others according to their whim and will never work through a problem, who, you know, this kind of dating culture where if somebody's left eyebrows a bit weird, you dump them and try the next one. And neither of those looks good, but then you have to figure out in a kind of an interstitial space how you want to be. Is there any kind of... Are you looking for, like, an external guide or are you just going like to have to sit with yourself and hammer out principles from first principles? I think it's more of, yeah, like an internal question. Like, I mean, part of how I got to this point anyways is noticing that there's something inside of me pushing me that way regardless of the external principle, regardless of the attitude of, like, you know, like, the the, like... You know, my husband's a wonderful person and a lovely partner and who cares if they're like X, Y, and Z that aren't really going right, you know, like you can tough it out, no problem. Despite that, like this part of me has always been pulling this direction away. So it's more of like, so far it's like listening to that and having good results come from listening to that. But it's like, a, it's a a feeling or an impulse and the other other thing in my background it's like you don't trust you don't trust feelings you're supposed to like trust rationality you know like do cost benefit analysis you know take sort of the the safer more secure route otherwise you know whatever consequences you face are because you're an idiot you know you deserve no sympathy that kind of thing so i'm always drawn back to this argument of rationality versus emotion as somebody who's like quite I find rationality very appealing and I find it sort of it's neat and it's safe and it's also I consistently come back to the fact that it's a lie Mm. that rationality is internally consistent but it is always one step away from reality almost by definition it's an abstraction. And you can sort something out in that abstraction that's a very neat solution and then it just doesn't map to the world at all. You know, you're like, I should be happy. It's All these boxes are being ticked and then you're not. And that creates more misery than if you just go into the emotion and you go, I'm not happy and start dealing with what that is. Maybe there is a way to make yourself happy within the constraints of wherever the situation, your job or your marriage or whatever. Maybe you, and I think you are obliged to make some effort to go, okay, let's deal with these emotions. Can I make myself happy? You know, not rationally, but in the emotional state, can I just be happier? (laughs) Like, am I being self-indulgent in my misery? And then if you've sorted that through, then you can you know, they're like, well, I'm, this isn't going to work emotionally. And then you can deal with the next thing. And for me, that's a more reasonable way. I think I'm making a distinction here between like reason and rationality. Sure, yeah. Um, that is, so I'm, I'm not using them in any kind of understood sense, but <laughs> vibing it out. Um, but yeah, you, you have to deal with the emotions as they are. And if you can't, you can't really argue your way out of them except by abstracting yourself from reality and living in a kind of a a model of the world or a virtual reality. Yeah, that resonates a lot in the sense of something I've been struggling with, 
you know, before sort of taking these steps is like, like looking at my life and being like, it's so nice on paper and I'm unhappy. That must mean that I can never be happy or like I have some threshold for happiness that's like much higher than other people's or like, you know, like I'm destined for misery because my map of the world rationally like isn't matching my feelings and drawing conclusions that way versus like you're saying, like listening to the feeling and dealing it with from there instead of telling it what it's doing. Yes. Yeah. Telling it it's wrong. I think, I think I am starting to suspect that most people are wrong about what will make them happy. Mm. When they think about what will make them happy, I think, I mean, it's, it sort of it starts in, in school where people say, you say, what do you want to do? And they go, I want to be a lawyer. And what they mean is I want to be on television <laughs> as a, a barrister in a courtroom, you know, mm-hmm. slamming down evidence. And what actually a, being a lawyer is, is like very fine reading of very boring contracts for nine hours a day and then dealing with unhappy people. Like, actually, that's what the job is, being around miserable people <laughs> all the time in really high-stress situations. Um but high stress, by high stress, I don't mean exciting. <laughs> I just mean like, fuck, if I don't read this email properly and interpret it as the judge would interpret it, my client loses $30 million. Like, Boring and stressful. Yeah, boring and stressful combination of things. And, and that's, you know, o- only once you've worked for 10 years to get any kind of position of power. Um, you have to be a very special kind of person to find that fun and interesting or you have to be willing to stomach the boredom for the status and you have to enjoy the status so much. You have to enjoy going on a yacht on the weekend so much that it's worth spending the rest of your time clenching your teeth, basically. Yeah. And I think somebody, some people probably do the, like, the status yeah. thing, you know, which good on them. But Oh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I think within the, the law firm particularly I found the jockeying for status like nauseating or sort of unpleasant, unsettling, disorienting, really kind of it felt like being in a nightmare to me, really dizzying the way that people were doing these little digs at each other and little power plays and office politics, very normal. Like, and again, who am I to think that I'm better than that? Everyone works in an office. Everyone has that kind of unpleasant experience. They just stomach it or they enjoy it or they ignore it. And I couldn't ignore it and I couldn't stomach it and I couldn't enjoy it. And so I left. It reminds me, I was thinking about this. Um, I don't remember which of your shows this is from, but you have one of them where you talk about your traditional career route is trading in your, your present time and happiness on this, like, the promise of like a nice time and happiness down the line. Yeah. Way later on. Um, And then somebody who's like pursuing writing as a career instead of a more traditional job. That's helped me like think about how it's like potentially not so stupid to like try to do something that's riskier, but potentially more rewarding. Yeah, I think for me, the metric is that something has to be not necessarily enjoyable, not like happiness, like happiness, I think, is a is a false idol. It has to be nourishing day to day. It can't just be selling your soul down the river in the hope that when you get to retire, you'll go on like fun cruise ships or whatever. Like I just don't believe in the future in that way. I don't have any faith in the future arriving or it being good or you not being disabled or whatever. 
So whatever you're doing now, it's not that you should wallow in the present and not think about the future at all. It's just that if the future doesn't happen, it has to be worth it. And I think about that when I think about religion as well. If you have a, a faith system, it can't all be banked on the afterlife. Like if, if the afterlife isn't real, you kind of have to operate as though if God doesn't exist, would this still be a good way to live? Good enough, you know, to be worth living in and of itself. I think, yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting question. Are you just hedging there, do you think, or is it? Part of it is hedging. Yeah, part of it is if the future doesn't arrive, is it is this good enough? Mm-hmm. And then and then in the context of like relationship or, or work, not that every minute has to be bliss, but that it has to feel nourishing, like it's going somewhere, like it's doing something, like it's it's there's something in it in itself that's worthwhile. Privilege is the other thing, the other kind of element of this, which is that it's a very privileged position to be in, to be able to walk away from a job, to be able to walk away from a relationship, that you're not financially dependent, that you're not, you know, emotionally dependent or or any of those things. I always think the way that we use privilege as a kind of a denigrating thing, Mm. oh, well, I shouldn't do this because it's a privilege to be able to do it. No, you should do it because it's a privilege. If it's, a, if it's a privilege that isn't, you know, ruining other people's lives or whatever. But, you know what I mean, I, if I have the ability to do this thing that many other people don't get to do, actually I should do it and do with it what I can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. I think part of my – the weird morass of feelings around my separation is this fact that, like, you know, my, my life isn't – my life is pretty nice. Like my relationship is pretty is pretty fine, especially compared to ones people have had to weather or do have to weather. So it, it seems wrong. I don't know, you know, like to be able to be like, oh, well, it's not, you know, fulfilling enough. So and we have the luxury of just leaving it. So we will. And I know that's OK. Like I hear your point, but it's hard to feel it. You know? Yeah. I used to listen to Dan Savage. Do you know Dan Savage? Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I was much younger. But one of the things that he used to say was that a a failed relationship isn't just when you both die. Like a successful relationship isn't just one where you both die. A, A successful relationship can be one where you both leave it. You complete the relationship. You finish that level and then you both go your own ways. Better people for it. And I sort of think that's what, good relationships are is where you both help each other become better people Mm. and part of that is recognizing when you can't do that for each other anymore yeah where you can't give each other that help and you have to leave space for somebody else to do that or for no one else to do that just to give them that that space I think that's a a really admirable and good thing and not one that is really recognised in our society as a... I think the closest you get is people admiring divorced co-parenting mm. arrangements mm-hmm. where someone has a really amicable relationship with their, you know, like their, their ex came to their new wedding or, you know, all of that stuff. But that's usually in the context of children being involved and the the sort of subliminal messaging is that you've managed to put aside your bitterness for the sake of the children, there's a, there's a kind of a sacrificial element to it that makes it okay. Mm-hmm. 
somehow uh, in our kind of weird fucked up value system. It makes me happy when I see people who are friends with their exes or have that kind of amicable relationship because it makes me feel like, yeah, they 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 completed it. <laughs> That's great. Awesome. Yeah, um, that is nice. No one had to die for this relationship to work. Kind of along those lines, something my husband and I, my fiancé, uh, were pretty good at and like doing was like hosting things and then and, and haven't for a while because of the pandemic and everything and so I think we're gonna do an apartment cooling party because we're moving out of the apartment that we've been in for eight years and I like this idea he likes this idea but I'm a little bit worried that like our friends won't have it or like we'll be mad I don't know it seems like like I have this feeling of like I think it's a good idea in like a nice way to help our community, our friend community sort of process as well, you know, and like move into the next stage. But it also feels like, oh, like I'm not taking this seriously enough or, you know, it, it like I feel like people, there's some like a sense of like you, you can't do that or that's too awkward or, you know. I think it's always worth celebrating the end of a relationship in that way. And I mean celebrating in a kind of a, ceremonial way Mm -hmm. because it is a big thing and I don't I think in the same way as we don't actually have that many good rituals around grieving anymore if you have a kind of a formal process even if it's one that you're making up between you to kind of give it its due and let it go then you're not lonely lonely like sobbing into a bottle of whiskey watching a terrible movie having to like that that's become the tradition eat a whole tub of ice cream in front of a rom-com and weep yeah that doesn't seem like the healthiest tradition to celebrate a breakup uh, or to mark a breakup or whatever it is. It, you know, getting your hair bleached or <laughs> any number of things that you kind of see. I think it, it's worth, in a world where people do have these big breakups, you're not committed to somebody for life just because you banged them. You have these significant long-term relationships that end we do need more ceremonies and rituals around the ends of those relationships because they're significant and they're worth marking. I think, too, part of the stigma or fear around around divorce is also because it's just it's destabilizing for a community. And, you know, I can use community pretty loosely here, but it's just you have a group of friends and, you know, now these two friends aren't together anymore and you're like, okay, how do I handle that? I think a lot of times people just don't or they just you know what I mean like those two people are out or like there's like this uncertainty that goes through everybody because of it and I think like you're talking about rituals I think part of that is because there's no no formal yeah mechanism that helps everybody be like okay we're going from here to here and now we're here and we know we sort of know we're all on the same page and that things are going to be okay. Yeah, even just going, no, 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 we can be invited to the same events. You don't have to now divide all of your invitations between us. That's an important thing to know. Or maybe you do. But you like as long I think that's something that needs to kind of yeah, be addressed for the community. Do I never say this person's name in front of you again? Or do we like give it 6 months and then start inviting you to the same things? Just having being on the same page so people don't have to get it wrong discover by hurting you that they've done the wrong thing 
I only really have one very strong principle about friends and breakups, which is that nev- you should never ask your friends about advice about your relationship, which contrary to every piece of like piece of advice in the world, I just think your friends care more about their relationship with you than they do about your relationship with the other person. So they're going to give you the advice that will benefit your relationship with them, not your relationship with your partner. That's probably true for advice from friends across the board, right? Where it's like like life advice or anything. It's very hard if you, you see a friend where you're like, this is clearly the wrong thing or whatever, to tell them like, well, I don't know about this. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're going off the deep end. This is, this is like I can see it coming a mile off. You're being an idiot. I have a friend who is constantly starting new things. He's always excited. He's learning skydiving. He's joining the army. He wants to study. And it, and in our 20s, that's like a really attractive quality in a person. You're like, wow, they're improving themselves. They're trying new things there. And then sort of as you get towards your late 30s, you're like, is this healthy? Mm. Because it's not hobbies that he's interested in. It's not learning a new language. It's it's starting a new career or having this ambition to to do something. And it sort of reflects also in relationships. He's very into the beginnings of things. Mm-hmm. And you start to realise that then there are all these loose ends left untied. And in the same way, there's a new relationship on the scene and then after a while you just sort of never hear about it again. Mm-hmm. Which is why coming back to your wrestle I think it is really nice to have a kind of a ceremonial moment Mm, mm -hmm. I think if more people did that I would have less conversations where I was like hi how's Anna and they're like oh we broke up three years ago (laughs) this is all just in my own interest (laughs) because I don't really follow social media so I don't see people's not that anyone does relationship statuses on Facebook anymore Mm. they were always a bit obnoxious my husband was also like stressed about like how many people to tell and how do we how do we tell them and I was like that's not the most important thing but I joked like you, do you want to send out a press release um but I'm thinking this could be our press release this podcast episode just be like this is this is the first <laughs> release nice. thank you <laughs> breaking exclusive that's right if you're hearing this without me telling you personally friends and family whoops sorry about that <laughs> Yeah, sorry. Uh, I mean, I don't know if the crossover of people who listen to my podcast and know you a bit, but not well enough to <laughs> have been told about this. I mean, I apologize if this is the first you're hearing about it. <laughs> or you're welcome, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the weird things about doing a podcast is that people know things about you that you haven't told them. Mm-hmm. And in a kind of a miniature version, that's what happens on social media too. People know things and you haven't told them. You've announced it. In, as an act of public act, but you haven't had a conversation about mm-hmm. it. I don't know if that's good. It's just... I, I kind of like it, I think, generally. What do you like about it? I get tired of telling people things, so it's nice to just yeah. be able to, like, whoever's interested, here's something. I don't know if that says anything about me. I feel like that's the, the impulse of the writer, yeah is to have have it out there and kind of put do do the work on creating the announcement or the piece of information and then then release it and, and it does its own work. Um, it's much more efficient that way. But then the problem with that is then you can kind of sometimes assume that somebody knows something about you that they don't. One of the odd things for me is that I, I have this podcast where I talk like quite openly and intimately about things that are going on in my head and then I have 
people who I would consider friends to whom I don't talk like this. Um, so they, that I feel like then there are strangers who have more insight into me than some of my friends. Yeah, something I, like a 2023 thing and like new life stage thing that I am attracted to is like the idea of, of being known, of being more open. I'm, I'm enjoying some writers right now who are memoirists who are very um, open and frank and go into like, you know, their whole career is sort of opening up themselves and looking at the pieces and like working through it in writing. Um, and I think it's attractive to me now because it's like you do one sort of scary thing and it's like, what else? You know, like, let's keep going. Um, but what are your thoughts on that as far as like offering your, like being being known, offering yourself up in that way to just anybody, to the public? So the way that I think about what I do is that I'm a, a an open book with sealed sections. That's the turn of phrase that I use to sort of conceptualize it. But what it is that I, is that I have very strong boundaries about certain areas of my life where I will not talk about them. And I think partly as a result of that or kind of the two interact with one another. On the other hand, I am very open, more open than most people about everything else, I think. Mm. So I kind of have these like big, solid stakes in the ground where it's like, I will not, this is, I won't go past this. And if there's an insight that happens inside these walls, I have to translate it into something else before it comes out into the public. I won't reveal these things. And that makes me feel secure enough to be open. Because I think if you're just open... I know some people whose whole life project is their art, their whole, they're completely open in that way. And I, I feel like a couple of things can go wrong there. Number one, you start to think of your life as a performance because if everything is open, then everything is, is publicised, is everything is published, everything is a work, everything is a piece of your job, everything is a piece of your art. And there's no way to really be authentic if your thing is being authentic because you're always going to be conscious that there is somebody watching and watching always, you know, even on a molecular level, it influences what is, you know, the observation influences the action of the little particles. So I think of it like that. So I have these spaces that are private to kind of contextualise everything else where inevitably however vulnerable you are on stage you are on stage however vulnerable you are in public you are in public and that will always affect it mm -hmm. the only people for whom it doesn't affect it are completely deranged <laughs> <laughs> you know the people who are you know 100% no filters you know that's somebody who's off their medication like that's you have to be impacted by the, the world around you, the people around you, and, and, and the consciousness of being watched. It's a deeply human thing to be affected by that. So, like, 100% openness is a good idea in theory, but in reality, I think, is 
very easily becomes like quite dangerous and pathological and and you lose touch with yourself in constantly performing the self it almost doesn't matter what the areas are where it's private that it should be concrete in some way that i'm never going to talk about my body or whatever it is i'm never going to talk about what i'm eating i'm never going to talk it it doesn't matter what the thing is but that you have this conscious thing taken away from the outside world keeps you aware that what you're putting out is edited Mm -hmm. and you don't delude yourself into thinking that you're being the product Mm -hmm. this is a topic that's been talked about to death but i kept thinking about um social media and you know generations that are coming up with social media as opposed to coming to it later, like where, where you're using it from when you're young enough that, you know, in an, on enough platforms like this newer, like the Be Real, where it's like it triggers when you post. So all of a sudden you could be watched at any time. Like I read Melissa, Melissa Phoebus is an author that I've been reading a lot, and she has a essay in Girlhood that talks about the panopticon, this concept of, like I love the Panopticon, yes. And how um, the the law firm that I used to work at had glass offices, glass walled on the offices. So you could be just yeah to throw that in the mix. <laughs> so yeah, because if you can be watched at any time, you start internally regulating, right? You're you you become the prison guard to yourself because you know that you could like be viewed, suffer consequences for it at any time. And how like the be real thing is kind of like that, right? Like at any point. Like, you could be, you're not forced, but, you know, opt into imaging or taking a video. I haven't used it, obviously. <laughs> like, whatever you do, but, like, of a piece of your life. So then, like, to what extent do you start thinking, like, I have to always be in this performance state, like you're talking about. Like, I have to always be whatever that is for you, the thing that you want to be viewed as. I just watched Severance, the season one of Severance, and I was blown away by it. I think partly because I haven't watched very much for the last year. Um, so I've night weaned. I get my leisure time back. I watch something. I think it's amazing. The same, like I'd never recommend anything you've watched after a breakup on an aeroplane or when you haven't watched anything from a year. Um, but I think it's amazing. Um, if you are listening, you can tell me if I'm wrong or not. But one of the the premise of it, this is not spoilering it, the premise of it is that when you are on the grounds of your work, you are a different person. You're severed from your outside self. You have no memory of the outside world. And when you're in the office, you're, you are this one person. And then outside the office, you have no memory of the office you're severed you have two selves and um I think it's really done well and unpacked really well but the insight that there is which is that people have a whole different self at work you know people have their work husbands they have their work relationships they have their work persona they have their professional self some people um if you've ever heard someone do a business call as opposed to a personal call the way their voice changes on a business call, the, the, the controlled self, the professional self. And like part of what the fun, what's fun about severance is that it's sort of the opposite way around. The p- person that they are at work because they have no memories is very naive and innocent and, and not at all the kind of deeply controlled professional self. But um, 
I, th- I just think that's such a, a good point that then they've extended out into this show, which is we have these severed selves, we have these different facets of self, and I think it's worthwhile just thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, everyone will come to different conclusions about what you do with that, whether you try and integrate those selves or whether you try and separate those selves or whether you try and, you know, part of what I like to do in public is to be multifaceted which is not to say entirely transparent, but to show different versions or angles. Versions sounds disingenuous because it's not disingenuous. Different angles of myself, Mm -hmm. different ways of being, different ways that you can be. And part of that's just contrarianism because I I don't like the way in which women, particularly in public, are told which model they fit. You know, they're there seem to me to be more multifaceted men in public Mm -hmm. as far as I can tell. But then, of course, social media means everyone's public, so maybe I'm entirely wrong. This, like, might be too inside baseball, but you're talking about at your Kronos having a a Bugle fan show up and be very, like, buglery and it being, like, totally wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh. Yes. This is a different facet. This is a different venue. Yeah, what I do in stand-up is very different from what I do in The Bugle. And and I think if you like both of those things, then you become a patron. Uh, (laughs) Or you sort of, then you like the whole thing. But some people just want silly, satirical news comedy. And that's, they're not wrong. That's fine to want that. But then don't come to my solo shows (laughs) because that's not what my solo shows are. They're just a completely different thing. And it's not a trick you know, to have different things that you do. Mm-hmm. Which is why I always like, like, I love that Russell Crowe has a band. That's great. <laughs> but everyone's sort of contemptuous, always trying to do something else. Or I often recommend this book because I think it makes a really good point. Stephen Fry's The Ode Less Travelled, which is a book about poetry and enjoying poetry and specifically writing poetry without the pressure to be the best poet in the world. Writing poetry that is bad, that is just fun, writing poetry in the way that you might pull out a guitar at a family gathering because it's fun and pleasurable and enjoyable to enjoy words together. I, and I find that like a really, a really good guide for avoiding the fear of failure. Mm-hmm. It's okay to enjoy things that you're not good at. Yeah, I think so. This is like a little bit back, but I think mentioning like asking kids what they want to be when they grow up, like this idea that we train people to imagine an ending that they think they want and go for that. Like, I think it trains this idea that you can't start moving until you know where you're going, which like, I think Mm -hmm. it really works the opposite, like where you have to start moving first and testing things out and seeing what you enjoy and seeing like what really sticks and then just end up where you end up if that makes sense like I feel like that's how things actually happen yeah I think having a point on the horizon towards which you sort of aim your ship and then anywhere along that path that you fall is good I think Sort of having, yeah, having an interest or following your own interest is a good way to think about it. 
but then being really aware in the moment of what is it that you're enjoying, what is it that you don't enjoy, rather than thinking about some future point at which this will all come good, I think you're better off being led by the practice and the process and the bits of the process that you enjoy more and you steer more into that, you know, you sort of feel it out as you go. That makes sense to me. Um, this is my my brother downstairs entertaining the children. It's, uh, I don't think he understands how podcasts work. <laughs> you may not want to touch on this, but you are coming back from a maternity leave. How has like having a, a child and having like this new, you know, set of circumstances? That sounds like a very cold way to describe motherhood. But um, like, how has it changed your your I don't know, outlook on comedy and, and how you work and how is that going? I am more relaxed on stage, I think. Um, I'm more ruthless in my business side of things. I don't say yes to things that aren't worth my time anymore because I have this kind of other factor to consider. And in a way that I used to kind of have to force myself to negotiate, not on my own behalf because I'm not very good at that, but on behalf of the next woman who would come along. I've now made the next woman who's going to come <laughs> along. Like, I'm much less willing to kind of put up with bullshit because I am making this world. Um, and I think that's also another... I mean, that's part of growing up is realising you are creating the world, that you're not just moving through a world that is owned by other people, that it's you're not just getting promoted or told that you can take the next step. You are making the world as much as anyone else is. You're the man, you're the person. There's no one who you can look to for a pat on the head or approval or guidance or, you know, to, to let you enter the big leagues. Mm -hmm. Everything you do is creating the real world. And I think we can live in these abstractions when we're talking in theory on the internet about what you should do and how you should behave and how you should talk and what the right way to do things is and then you kind of try to translate that into the real world. I think it feels like the wrong way to do it to me because actually this is the real world. <laughs> like everything you do is on the real world, including spending your time on the internet instead of in reality. That's an act that you're taking and I'm not sure it's the most beneficial act. Maybe it is, maybe you're learning something really useful, maybe you are developing something really practical that you can then apply, but I think you need to think of that time not as time sort of suspended, but actual, this is an hour of your day, are you using it? So I th yeah, I've sort of become much more ruthless about my time. And it has to be... Yeah, it has to feel worth something. A big question that I have sort of all the time is like this idea of what can we expect out of life? I think to your point, I think it was very smart about the like fact that we create the world and at some point have to let go of the idea that there is an external structure and like external guidance counselors that are making sure everything is manageable and linear and yeah that you just have to like follow this set of rules and you know you ought to be okay like it's not school for your whole life right it is for like the beginning and then I think it's yeah. very hard to get out of that framework of some sort of like 
governing authority body to which as long as you are a good enough boy or girl, you're insured some measure of reward, right? Like that's not there at all. Yes. But like, so like your position of privilege and the success you've had, I think that's amazing and there's so much strength in it. And at the same time, like, I don't know, you've had to like build it without a guarantee of any of it. Like the luck, I guess, is that there's no reason it had to work out like that even it even given your same inputs i don't know yeah i mean everything everything is is down to luck i think i I think you can't leave that out but also the luck of being born to the people you were born to and all of that and as now as as a parent i'm thinking about the ways in which you affect your child and the ways in which you don't i'm going to talk about this more at some point but i i feel like the work that you do as a parent is sort of half building and half sort of abstract artistic contribution that you're dropping ink in water and it will make shapes but you don't necessarily control the shapes that they make but then you can add what other ink drops and you can sort of you can sort of guide it and 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 give these kind of and, and nourish it and and but you don't control it it's sort of this thinking about it as art makes it easier for me And then I think about this impulse that people have to look up for authority, to look up for permission. To, And I see a reflection of that in the way that some children are helicoptered at the playground and when they run towards the edge of a dangerous thing, they look over their shoulder Mm. Mm. behind them. They look behind them instead of at the thing that they're running towards because they expect the parent to come in and seize them, to come in and grab them. They've got this habit of looking, and whether it was because my mum was sick and we were allowed to run wild, I don't feel like I grew up looking over my shoulder waiting for someone to save me. I feel like I grew up figuring out the obstacle and maybe falling off it. And I mean, my brother at the bottom of the tree coming, Ali, come down, it's too high. Like, that that was there. Um, (laughs) And that you still sort of look to him for approval is interesting. I, I did not think of that, but yes. Partly, partly, yes, I want him to say it's okay. And sometimes he does say it's too high, it's too much. I don't like that show. But I think becoming a parent has made me more conscious of, this is going to sound like cringy therapy talk, but like how you parent yourself, the habits that you let yourself get into, that, that looking over your shoulder or looking up vibe, how... how going to school teaches you to look to authority for advice and what school is for is for so your parents can go and work at the factory like that's actually what it's for and to, it, it is there to control you and conform you and to socialize you and that's important to a certain extent you need to know how to operate around other people you can't just do what you want to do you can't just walk out of a room because you're a bit bored um but equally you create these habits in the way that you operate day to day. And most of what we do in life is habit. And the habits of mind are as important as the habits of of your of your body. I don't have an outcome for this <laughs> line of thought. This is just things that I have been thinking about. There's no, like, profound conclusion um, as ever. It's good to know that after a year off, Tea with Alice is still me just being like, blah, 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 I don't know. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think along these lines, the mental habit thing, something I've been trying to coach into myself is to not, like I tend to think of my life like it hasn't really started yet. And I'm 35. <laughs> like I have to be like, Amy, like you're in it. This is not like looking towards graduation, you know, when you're going to go out into the real world. But like in a in a good way too, where I think like, I hope I get to do these things in life and I have to tell myself like, you're doing them now. This is, this is your life right now. Yeah. You've, you've written a Hollywood movie. Like you are, <laughs> you are doing the thing. This is part of it. Like you have to celebrate the things that you achieve because it's so easy to think of them. It's kind of a self disrespect. The moment I did a gig at the opera house, I'm like, oh, it's not a big deal. Because I did it. It can't yeah. be a big deal. Turns out they I let it. anybody. I was allowed to do it, so it can't be a big deal. No, it is a big deal. I'm now the kind of person who does a gig at the Opera House. That's cool. I'm cool. <laughs> like, You're already doing it. You're in it. Yeah. yeah yep. Instead of being like, well, in the future, I hope I'm able to. And it'll be stuff I'm doing right now, but it just it doesn't feel. I'm trying to coach myself into, I don't know. There's no amount of success that feels like the end, as you can see from the way that Elon Musk behaves. <laughs> you know? You've, you've done so much. You've written a film. You've completed a marriage. Like, <laughs> Wrapping things up. <laughs> you're in it. Where can people find you online and support your work and find your stuff? I think the best place would be Instagram if you want to follow me at Amy Brown Carver. I tend to put stuff on there. You can be a participant in my own Panopticon. Enjoy. <laughs> Self regulated panopticon. Yeah. Thank you so much for having tea with me. This is really good. This is a really lovely conversation to have because we met on Twitter and then you were a patron and then we like became friends and it makes me feel good that you are now on tea with Alice. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much, Alice. Oh do you know her or do you not? This stop is mistress that we have got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps the doffers at every frame. Lowly rifle doll, lowly rifle